Chapter 25, Part 2 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 25, Part 2. The Reluctant Editor, 1925 to 1930. Taking the rest of a year and returning fresh to G.K.'s Weekly, I was surprised at finding how much I enjoyed reading it, and also at finding that it had been of more practical use than I remembered to the cause it served. The trend of the whole world is to make the state powerful and the family powerless. It was something that in these years G.K.'s Weekly should have helped to smash two bills of this nature, the mental deficiency and the canal children's bills. Both these aimed at taking children from their parents, the first in the cause of health, the second of education. Against both, Gilbert wrote brilliantly and successfully. G.K.'s Weekly has much more G.K. in it, and quite as much Belloc as in the earlier years of The New Witness. Eric Gill, too, a long friend of the Chestertons, became the chief contributor on art. In 1925, he spent a night at Top Meadow to discuss the policy of the paper, especially with reference to industrialism in art. A little later, the Gills moved from Wales, much nearer to Beaconsfield, and the two men met fairly often. Gills' letters are interesting. They are mostly before the visit to Beaconsfield and probably led to it. He begins by attacking Gilbert for, one, supporting Orpanism against Byzantinism, and two, thinking that the art of the painting began with Giotto, whereas Giotto was really much more the end. In June 1925, G.K. was asking him to write about Epstein. Gill agreed to do so, but insisted that Chesterton and Belloc must not disagree with him, but accept my doctrine as the doctrine of G.K.'s weekly in matters of art, just as I accept yours in other matters. I don't intend to write for you as an outsider. Have I not put almost my last quid into your blooming company? 7% or not? God forbid that you should have an art critic who will go around the picture shows for you and write bilge about this painter and that and this art movement and that. In the first state of effervescence, the labor he delighted in quite deadened the pain of the editor's chair. Gilbert was prepared, if necessary, to write the whole paper and to treat it as a variant on the toy theater or the sword stick. It was said that the Chicago pork machine used every part of a pig except the squeal. It might be said that the Fleet Street press machine uses only the squeal. In short, nobody reading the newspapers could form the faintest notion of how intelligent we newspaper people are. The whole machine is made to chop up each mind into meaningless fragments and waste the vast mass even of those. Such a thing as one complete human being appearing in the press is almost unknown, and when an attempt is made at it, it necessarily has a certain air of eccentric egotism. That is a risk which I am obliged to run everywhere in this paper and especially on this page. As I have said, the whole business of actually putting a paper together is a new game for me to play, to amuse my second childhood. And it combines some of the characters of a jigsaw and a crossword puzzle. But at least I am called upon to do a great many different sorts of things and am not tied down to that trivial specialism of the proletarian press. March 28th, 1925. And again, this paper exists to insist on the rights of man, 
on possessions that are of much more political importance than the principle of one man, one vote. I am in favor of one man, one house, one man, one field. Nay, I have even advanced the paradox of one man, one wife. But I am almost tempted to add the more ideal fancy of one man, one magazine, to say that every citizen ought to have a weekly paper of this sort to splash about in, this kind of scrapbook to keep him quiet. April 4th, 1925. G.K. goes on to talk about an old idea of his. That is, a young journalist should write one article for the Church Times and another for Pinkun, and then put them into the wrong envelopes. It is that sort of contrast and that sort of combination that I am going to aim at in this paper. I cannot see why convictions should look dull, or why jokes should be insincere. I should like a man to pick up this paper for amusement and find himself involved in an argument. I should like him to pursue it purely for the sake of argument and find himself pulled up short by a joke. I never can see why a thing should not be both popular and serious, that is, in the sense of being both popular and sincere. For the paper had a most serious purpose. He acknowledged its defects of bad printing, which the printers indignantly denied, bad proofreading, bad editing, and claimed to raise against the banner of advertisement the noble banner of apology. Because a creative revolution was what he wanted. Words and forms were hard to find. It was easy to dress up stale ideas in a new dress, but the terminology for something outside the old hack party programs had to be fresh minted. He proposed various changes after a few months running and introduced them thus. We should be only too glad if, for this week only, our readers would have the tact to retire and leave us alone. We are in the Hegelian condition, a condition not so much of being as of becoming. And no generous person would spy on an unfortunate fellow creature who is going through the horrible and degrading experience of being a Hegelian. It is even more embarrassing than being caught in the very act of evolution, which every clear-headed person would desire to avoid. December 12, 1925. In this number, he began The Return of Don Quixote, and also a sort of scrapbook. He invited contributions dealing with every sort of approach to distributism and promised more than one series of constructive proposals and definite schemes of legislation. We do not promise that all these schemes will exactly agree with each other, or that we shall agree with all of them. Some will be more conservative, some more drastic than our own view. This article ends with an ambitious note. Very varying schemes will be admitted, but the idea of the paper will thereby be strengthened, not destroyed. For what we desire is not a paltry party program, but a renaissance. It was not the first time that he had demanded a revolution, but as the Depression hit our country and big business seemed less and less capable of coping with it, the demand became more understandable and the fight against monopoly more urgent. A thinking man should always attack the strongest thing in his own time, for the strongest thing of the time is always too strong. The great outstanding fact and feature of our time is monopoly. April 25th, 1925. I've already referred to a debate on monopoly between Chesterton and Mr. Gordon Selfridge, in which Selfridge, with the familiar unreality of the millionaire, maintained that there was no such thing. Anyone was free to open a store in rivalry of Selfridge's or to start a paper that should eclipse the Daily Mail. 
The only real monopoly, he added gracefully, was that of a genius like Chesterton, whose work the ordinary man could not emulate. The graceful compliment Chesterton answered by offering to share his last epigram with Mr. Selfridge. But as to the main contention, what could he say? It was at once too easy and absolutely impossible to answer such a speech, or more truly such a speaker. Only in a country of the blind could he have won a hearing. But Chesterton persevered. Even in 1924, the shadow of large-scale unemployment had begun. And at this singularly inappropriate time came the Empire Exhibition at Wembley. In the failure of its appeal, Chesterton saw hope, for he believed that from a frank facing of truth, his country might yet conquer the coming perils. That was the real weakness of Wembley, that it so completely mistook the English temperament as to appeal to a stale mood. It appealed to a stale mood of success, when we need to appeal to a new and more noble mood of failure, or at least peril. The English no longer care to be told of an empire on which the sun never sets. Tell them that the sun is setting, and they will fight through the battle, go against them to the going down of the sun, if they do not stay it, like Joshua. We seriously propose that England should take her stand among the unhappy nations. It is too dismal a fate to go on being the happy ones. We must be as proud as Spain and Poland and Serbia, nations made more dear to their lovers by their disasters. Our disasters have begun, but they do not seem to have endeared us to anybody in particular. Our sorrow has come, but we gain no extra loyalty by it. The time has come to claim our crown of thorns, or at least not to cover it any longer with such exceedingly faded flowers. March 21st, 1925. Always Chesterton was haunted by the present war. He had seen the Prussian peril conquered. He saw it rising again. Even before the advent of Hitler, he knew that the tribe, which had stolen from Austria and Denmark, had invaded France and crushed Poland, was without repentance and he feared that again the stupidity, or the greed behind English and American policy, was giving it another opportunity. Those sturdy Teutons, he wrote ironically, from whom we were descended up to the outbreak of the Great War, and from whom we are now showing signs of being descended again. The misfortune was that Englishmen had ceased to try to get free from a secret government conducted by we know not whom, and achieving we know not what. The real national life of our country is unconscious of its own national policy. The right hand of the Englishman, that holds the plough or the sword, knows not what his left hand doth with the pen and the checkbook. Man is man, and Monde is master of his fate. For our government, he apologized to France. He saw it as one in the same fight, against the heathenish money power and heathen Prussia and the beating of the dark wings of enemy airplanes sounded in his dreams. As early as 1925, he wrote a Christmas play of St. George and the Dragon, in which the Turkish knight embodied his vision of Prussia, and St. George spoke prophetically for England. St. George I know that this is sure. Whatever man can do, man can endure. Though you shall lose all laws of fight and fashion. A torture chamber from a tilting yard, though iron hard as doom grow hot as passion. Man shall be hotter, man shall be more hard. And when an army in your hellfire faints, you shall find martyrs who were never saints.
They wound each other, and the doctor comes to help the Turkish knight. Princess, why should we patch this pirate up again? Why should you always win and win in vain? Bid him not cut the leg, but cut the loss. St. George, I will not fire upon my own red cross. Princess, if you lay there, would he let you escape? St. George, I am as a conqueror and not as ape. Doctor, be not so sure of conquering. He shall rise on lighter feet, on feet that vault the skies. Science shall make a mighty foot and new, light as the feather feet of Perseus flew. Long as the seven-league boots in tails gone by, this shall bestride the sea and ride the sky. Thus shall he fly and beat above your nation, the clashing pinions of apocalypse. Ye shall be deep-sea fish in pale prostration under the sky foam of his flying ships. When terror above your cities, dropping doom, shall shut all England in a lampless tomb. Your widows and your orphans, now forlorn, shall be no safer than the dead they mourn. When all their lights grow dark, their lives grow gray, what will those widows and those orphans say? St. George. St. George for Merry England. He saw the airplanes in vision, and he saw courage and patriotism. I think he must rejoice today that betrayal of the Allied cause has not been at the hands of an Englishman. He had said many hard things about the English aristocracy and gentry, but these two virtues he had always granted were theirs, and in his vision he saw hope. England may soon be poor enough to be praised with an undivided heart. We are not sure that the ruins of Wembley may not be the restoration of Westminster. It is when a nation has recovered from the illusion of owning everything that it discovers that it does not stand for something. And for that something, it will fight with a lucid and just tenacity which no mere megalomania can comprehend. We are not so perverse as to wish to see England ruined, that she may be respected. But we do think she will be happy in having the sort of respect that could remain even if she were ruined. Patriotic as the English have always been, the patriotism of their educated class has seldom had this peculiar sort of extra energy that is given by a conscience completely at rest. If that were added, they might well make such a stand as would astound the world. All their other virtues, their humor and sporting spirit and freedom from the morbidities and cruelties of fatigue, might enter into their full heritage when joined to the integrity and intellectual dignity that belong to self-defense and self-respect. We are far from sure that the world has not yet to see our nation in its finest phase. What may be in the womb of night, we know not. What are those dim outlines that show on the horizon? In truth, he wrote, no man knows how near we are to death or to dawn. I'm not sure whether I'm making this speech from a scaffolding or a scaffold. It's easy for the young to undertake hard things. They never know how hard they are, and they are certain of success. The lessons of experience signify to the young that other men have failed. Their own experience shall teach others the meaning of success. But to begin again at 50, with the special spring of youth gone, and with the sad lessons of one's own experience in the mind, this calls indeed for a rare courage. Gilbert knew all the cost and time, energy, money, and reputation that he would have to pay, that he did pay, and he stood increasingly alone. 
Cecil's had been the irreparable loss, and others of the old circle were dropping out and their places were not filled. Jack Fillmore's death in 1926 was a heavy blow. To his memory, Gilbert dedicated The Queen of Seven Swords, published the year of his death. You go before me on all roads, on bridges broad enough to spread, between the learned and the dunce, between the living and the dead. The gulf between the socialist group and the distributist had become far more obvious than of yore. Shaw and Wells would still write for G.K., but only because he was their friend. And if F.Y. Eccles or Desmond McCarthy today contributed, it would too be chiefly from affection for Gilbert. One article by Mr. McCarthy described the old days when the original eyewitness was in being, and he, Cecil, and Belloc sat around the table editing it, and sticking triolets thrown off in hot haste into those nasty little spaces left by articles that did not quite fit, or supplying three or four articles and a ballad or bane while the printers waited. We have to print a triolet. When space is clamoring for matter, we try to put it off, and yet we have to print a triolet. It is with infinite regret that we admit the silly patter. We have to print a triolet when space is clamoring for matter. Such joyous scrambles are proper to youth, and now none of them were young. All authors worthy of the name have found their platform and made permanent engagements by middle life. Professional men are absorbed by work and life. They simply had not time to give as of yore to build up this new old venture. The names of Shaw and Wells continue to appear among the contributors, often enough in religious debate. Reading the files and visiting the two men to talk of Gilbert, I made one discovery that is curious from whichever side you look at. Two able and indeed brilliant men betrayed not only an amazing degree of ignorance concerning the tenets of Catholicism, but also a bland conviction that they knew them well. Wells, in conversation, based his claim on the fact that he had long been intimately acquainted with an ex-nun. Shaw, I fancy, felt he must know all about something that had surrounded him in infancy, for as the reader must have noticed, he is much preoccupied by the thought of his Irish descent and education. But what seems to me even stranger about the situation is the absence on the Catholic side of any effort to explain to these men the doctrines they misconstrued. When Wells, for instance, gave a crude and inaccurate statement of the doctrine of the fall, Bellick laughed at him. Chesterton and Father McNabb both wrote long and picturesque articles illuminating to a believer, but as instruction to an unbeliever, quite useless. A correspondence that seemed like to drag on forever ended abruptly with Wells asking about the fall. Tell me, did it really happen? To which Chesterton briefly replied, yes. I imagine he thought that he and the other writers had said this several times already, but in fact they had not. Perhaps they did not realize where the beginning must be made in instructing otherwise instructed men on the subject of Catholicism. It is all very interesting and curious, but it largely explains why Bernard Shaw found it hard to believe that Gilbert believed in transubstantiation. Has any Catholic ever explained the philosophic meaning of transubstantiation to the great old Irish man of English letters? Even Gilbert was perhaps too much inclined simply to play the fool in high-spirited fashion with those who attacked the faith in his paper or other papers. But then, how well he played it. Here are some imaginary interviews on... The recently discovered traces of an actual historical flood. 
a discovery which has shaken the Christian world to its foundations by its apparent agreement with the book of Genesis. The dean of St. Paul's remarked, I do not see that there is any cause for alarm. Protestantism is still founded on an impregnable rock, on that deep and strong foundation of disbelief in the Bible, which supports the spiritual and intellectual life of all true Christians today. Even if dark doubts should arise, and it should seem for the moment as if certain passages in the scripture story were true, we must not lose heart. The cloud will pass, and we have still the priceless possession of the open Bible, with all its inexhaustible supply of errors and inconsistencies, a continual source of interest to scholars, and a permanent bulwark against Rome. Mr. H.G. Wells exclaimed, I'm interested in the flood of the future, not in any of these local floods that may have taken place in the past. I want a broader, larger, more complete and coordinated sort of flood, a flood that will really cover the whole ground. I want to get people to understand that in the future, we shall not divide water in this petty way into potty little ponds and lakes and rivers. It will be one big satisfying thing, the same everywhere, a primois le deluge. Bellic, in his boorish, boozy way, may question my knowledge of French, but I fancy that quotation will settle him. March 30th, 1929. On the favorite topic of modern advertisement, having read an essay which said that good salesmanship made everything in the garden beautiful, Gilbert again thought of Genesis. There was only one actor in that ancient drama that seems to have had any real talent for salesmanship. He seems to have undertaken to deliver the goods with exactly the right preliminaries of promises and praise. He knew all about advertisement. He may say he knew all about publicity, though not at the moment addressing a very large public. He not only took up the slogan, eat more fruit, but he distinctly declared that any customers purchasing this particular brand of fruit would instantly become as gods. And as this is exactly what is promised to the purchasers of every patent medicine, popular tonic, saline draft, or medicinal wine at the present day, there can be no question that he was in advance of his age. It is extraordinary that humanity, which began with the apple and ended with the patent medicine, has not yet become exactly like God's. It is still more extraordinary, and probably the result of a malicious interpolation by priests at a later date, that the record ends with some extraordinary remarks to the effect that one thus pursuing the bright career of salesmanship is condemned to crawl in his stomach and eat a great deal of dirt. March 23, 1929. The relation between Belloc and the paper, as between Belloc and Gilbert himself, was a unique one. Not indeed its online begetter, it was equally with Cecil begetter of the original paper and its first editor. He was Gilbert's chief guide in the historical and political scene of Europe. Both men had shared, had fought all their lives for, their ideas of freedom, the family, restoration of property, and all that is involved in Catholic Christianity. And Belloc said repeatedly that he had no platform for the continuous expression of these ideas. Such books as his Cruise of the Nona still found a wide public, as had the path to Rome a quarter century earlier. And in those books his philosophy may be read. But he had, too, urgent commentaries on foreign affairs and current policies, and for these, G.K.'s Weekly became his platform as completely as the new witness had been in the past. To Gilbert, this appeared one chief value of the paper. In an article from which I quote in the next chapter, he gives it as one of the two reasons for which he toiled to keep G.K.'s Weekly in existence. 
Week by week, Bellick on current and foreign affairs wrote of what was happening and would, would presently come of it. And who can say, reading those articles today, that it would not have changed the defeats of this war into victory at a far earlier date had our statesmen read or heeded the analysis of instance of the peril of the aeroplane, of the threat of the empire from Japan, the importance of keeping Italy's friendship in the Mediterranean, the growing strength of Germany, and the awful risk we took in allowing her to rearm and failing to arm against her. Whether he was right or, as many held, wildly wrong about what underlay our failures of judgment, his views must be briefly traced because of their effect on Gilbert and others. In the financial world, he saw England in the first years after the war dominated by the international banking power, which made us, as it were, a local branch of Wall Street. In his view, it was the bankers both of America and England who first insisted that Germany could not pay her reparations, and later made England repudiate her own war debts to America, though she had, he showed, already paid in interest and principal more than half of what she had been lent. The banks did this because they had lent commercially both to Germany and England sums whose safety meant more to them than monies merely owing to the nations, which would not benefit the banks. England thus became subservient to the United States and had to follow American financial policies. It was these policies that led to the abandonment of the unwritten alliance with France, and especially to allowing Germany to rearm, helped by loans from these same banks, to reoccupy the Rhineland and remilitarize the Ruhr. Next in Bellick's view came a worse stage, yet in which the banks had given place to big business, which was increasingly controlling Parliament. The plutocracy that had bit by bit eaten into our aristocracy and gained ascendancy in the government was not, like our ancient aristocracy, trained for business and was utterly uninformed, especially in foreign affairs. The one remaining hope, the permanent officials, especially the foreign office, were less and less listened to. Laterally, he held too that even the Foreign Office had lost its old sure touch, hence a constant vacillation in our policies, which weakened England's position and made certain some terrible disaster. This fear is ever present in Bellock's articles and ever brooded on by the editor. He rallied his forces to urge week after week the possible alternative to disaster, the recovery by the people of England of power and freedom the restoration of England to its place in a restored Europe, freed from the German menace. Despite the natural high spirits, a certain gloom and more than a touch of fierceness marked the work of these years. Summing up the twenties of the century, Chesterton saw them as singularly bankrupt, spiritually and intellectually, and he foresaw from their sowing a miserable harvest. End of chapter 25